This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 508 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Jay Smith. Now, Jay has spent his entire career working with first responder professions on entry testing and wellness initiatives. So what makes Jay's perspective so unique is rather than just the strength conditioning side, he is well-versed in the legal side. And I found it incredibly enlightening and powerful to hear how some of the barriers to entry we have at maintaining our standards are actually deep-rooted in politics and the legal side. Before we get to this very powerful, important conversation, I also want to say that this is September. We are about to hit the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and 5-11, one of my sponsors who I absolutely adore, is just about to release a documentary series with interviews with several responders from that day. The focus is not only honoring some of the heroism and the sacrifices made, but also focusing on 9-12. Probably one of the most powerful elements that came out of that tragedy was how this country unified. So they really do highlight that element as well. Before we get to the interview with Jay, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, 
subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of two million downloads now. We just hit two million, and I'm so, so happy that that's two million opportunities to improve your lives and over 500 guests. So all I ask in return, as you have been doing, and thank you so much, is to keep sharing these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Jay Smith. Enjoy. Jay, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And looking forward to it for a while. Yeah, no, it's it's going to be an amazing conversation. You're definitely one of the the voices that we need to hear. Before we start, I just want to say thank you to Matt as well for connecting us. I want to acknowledge him. This is Icebreaker. How do you know Matt? Um, Matt approached me some years back. I don't even know how many now. Um, I guess I've known him more than 10 years um, when he was still at Fairfax County um, and he was running the training operation and he was looking for some resources to bring in. He really was, was building one of the best programs. Um, it was also at a time when he was approaching his lowest um, with his health. And so that's, that's when we met and I got to uh, host him at a class. I think I was with the Maryland state police for that uh, class. And, um, also happened to introduce him to another friend of mine um, who's just getting ready to retire now from federal law enforcement. Um, and they've kind of hit it off as well. But Matt and I have grown very close over the 10 or more years or so that we've known each other. Beautiful. Where on planet Earth are we actually finding you today? Salem, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. All right. So starting at the very beginning of your own personal timeline, tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. <laughs> well, it's my chance to put the audience to sleep. <clears throat> no, 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 no. It's, it's amazing. You'd be surprised how much gold there actually is in just, just someone's upbringing and you know, how many tangents there are. I'm, uh, I'm always reminded of the nah, – I probably shouldn't say that. Never mind. I was, I'm reminded of a line from a Steve Martin movie, but I'll, I'll pass on that one for now. Um, <laughs> Uh, I am uh, old. I was born in 1963, so I've, I've been. I got a lot of mileage on my feet. Um, been around for a while. I was born. I'm the first born in a family of two. Um, my younger brother is a year and five days younger than I am, so we're almost Irish twins. Um, grew up in Beverly and Salem. Again, it's just north of Boston. Um, graduated from Salem High School, and. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how much detail we need about the early formative years. It's uh, um, some some tough lessons, some some uh, formative years, uh, life experiences have, have shaped, I guess, my outlook on things. Um, both my parents were very hardworking. My dad's 80 and he's just now retiring. Oh wow! Uh, he's a, he's a builder. Um, and, and is an absolute beast. Um, my mom, they, they, they divorced uh, very early, so that was that was part of my experience growing up. Um, 
which wasn't as common in the 60s as it is now. So there were there were challenges that were associated with it for them and um, I guess for the family unit. But uh, yeah, he's he is just now. I, I guess it's official. Um, as he's retiring, he's starting to have some health issues. But uh, he was working six days a week um, as a builder until last winter. Um, uh, hard to keep up with. He's a hard guy to keep up with. So with uh, you having the background that you have, just jump in for a second. Longevity, obviously, is not something that's really sold to the American population of 2021. Let's say holistic longevity, not chemical longevity. So when you look back at his work ethic, at what he ate, how he moved, you know, what attributes to him being able to do, you know, what's a very physically demanding job into such a, an incredible age? It, it, it's actually, James, despite his best efforts. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> he's, he's been very hard on himself. Um, he's... He is a. When I say he's a beast, I I, I don't. I, I I'll probably repeat that because I have a few of them in my family. But he, uh, yeah. Despite despite what he has always done to himself, he's he's a hard charger, hard liver. Um, comes from brilliant stock. My his father, my grandfather, we thought would probably live to be a hundred. He was still um, working into well into seventies and. Unfortunately, he was struck with um, late onset ALS, and it it was absolutely devastating. Um, he was a rock and a beacon in my life, and and uh, he lived in Kentucky, where my dad grew up. Um, he had phenomenal health and longevity in his family. He had he had aunts that lived to be a hundred or a hundred and two, um, and we assumed based on the way he was looking and going. But that was going to be his fate. Um, again, unfortunately, you you can't can't pick the fickle finger of fate when it sticks its root right up your nose. And he, um, it was a it was a characteristic and rapid decline. Um, and that was twenty years ago. Actually, he he died twenty years ago this year. Uh, he and, and and then my grandmother died almost three weeks after he did. Um, kind of a shocking story but not unfamiliar to some people I think you know he he she had dementia and and wouldn't let go of taking care of her despite the fact that that he was losing the ability to take care of himself and when she had received last rites I think a second time um, he kept her at home uh, took care of both of them um, and when it looked like his job was done he he checked out and, and she was gone two and a half weeks later. In fact, the, the one of the best stories, and there are a lot of great stories about my grandfather, um, many of which he shared with me. Um, but at his wake um, at the funeral home, the funeral director said, was uh, talking to a handful of us, and he said, I'm, I'm not sure I've ever met a man quite like Eric Smith. And he proceeded to elaborate by saying, one week ago today, he was in my office and said, I'm on my way out the door and she's right behind me. What's the best cash price you can give me? And the following week, he was laying in rest right above our heads on the, on the first floor. Um, it's just the way he lived his life. And when he was certain that um, his, his job was done, um, I believe he, he didn't want to have somebody dressing him and taking care of him. Um, and uh, it, 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 if you believe that 
we have that kind of some people have that kind of control. I, I believe he exercised it, and he and he died with great dignity. Um, so um, that's where my father comes from, and he's the third oldest of eleven. They actually had sixteen children. She lost five, uh, and he eat. Well, his the three youngest uh, have already passed. Three youngest boys have already passed, um, and he was still working. So it's um, and now I see my oldest is a builder also, and I his I named him Eric. Um, he takes much better care of himself and has the absolute machine of a beast in him. He is indefatigable, as they say. Nothing makes the kid tired. Um, probably had a. A national class aerobic capacity um, and he, he does he applies it to his building and, and you can't keep him down so the, the apple didn't fall far from the great-grandfather tree I think now with with great-grandfather two things firstly I think it's always beautiful when you hear um, you know that that one one member in, in a marriage passes away and then shortly after the other one does and it's you know the broken heart analogy I think is true you know I really do but with ALS, um, there's a guy, uh, you know, a, a, a firefighter that it's breaking my heart because he got ALS and he was a football player. And you seem to see, not always, but sometimes as the contact sport. Do you know, I mean, obviously it's a couple of generations, if he was a boxer, a football player, anything like that, that would have given him head trauma early when he was younger? I think delayed onset or late onset ALS is a little different. Um, I, I could be wrong because there are, there are many forms of ALS. You know, there's the, the, the very long lasting um, that leaves people in a, in a state, but they live for, for many, many years with it. Um, I don't think that the late onset is like that. Um, he didn't, um, he probably took a few shots, um, but he wasn't, he didn't grow up at a time when athletic or, or in a culture where athletics were, were favored. He, uh, he, his family farmsteaded in Colorado for a while. We had pictures of adobe houses that they lived in for a very short while. And then when the Depression broke out, he started traveling around the country on railroad cars, freight trains. Um, and he followed the crops and he moved around. And, and some of the most amazing stories of him um, that he shared with me occurred during that time. Um, that's, how, that's how they survived. He was the, uh, he was the second or third I guess he was the second boy. So if the farm had continued to exist, he wasn't going to get it. His older brother would have. Um, so he struck out when, when things got bad um, just to survive. And um, He did tell me about some hairy circumstances that occurred because he stayed in hobo junctions. And you know, the stuff that movies and cartoons are made of, that, that was reality. You know, there were gang bosses. Um, I get railroad detectives, I guess they were called. Um, and hobo junctions and knife fights and card games and some um, some pretty hard living. So he may have taken a few shots. Um, he, he was a rugged guy. Um, but I don't know if that's the etiology for late onset ALS. Um, either way, it's brutal. It's a month before he died, I was with him and I watched him. I snuck in on him by accident. It wasn't by accident, I was getting ready to say goodbye. And, and he was actually using his teeth to button his shirt. Um, and talk about breaking your heart. <laughs> I, I'm not going to stay at that point too long because I knew that that was the last time I was probably going to see him alive, and it was. Um, but it's it is uh, for any of the listeners that that 
have have it in their family, they know, and and my heart goes out to them because it is a horrible disease. Um, it really is, absolutely brutal. Absolutely. Well, I think this is why you know the early life stuff is important. You know, these stories. I would much rather hear you talk about your granddad than hear what the Kardashians have for breakfast. You know what I mean? So I think there's so much that's lost in storytelling and in generations prior. My grandmother's, I'm hoping, you know, to, to see her. Uh, I have tickets as long as the world doesn't lose its mind again. Um, and she's about to turn 104. And my granddad was 99. He actually died of cancer. Otherwise, he would have lived longer too. So I'm very lucky, at least on that one side, to have some some good genes as well. And again, I mean, they they were very moderate in what they did i think that was you know the key to a lot but yeah they weren't like you know crazy fitness fanatics or anything but they just did everything in moderation yeah that would certainly characterize my grandfather he he adjusted his caloric intake uh, he grew up on a farm was a laborer um had had a number of different jobs my history with him he was a house painter that's what that was his business um and he worked hard every single day i i, I painted with them a lot of us did at some point in our our life. Um, I used to get out and, and spend my summers and then I eventually lived down there for a little while. Um, and he, he, his caloric intake was always modest. Um, he could, he could stay out and dance, um, and woo the ladies and, and, and party until two or three in the morning. But he was the first one up every single day. And, and as he told me, and, and I grew up to believe if you can't go out and play the night before and get up and work the next day, then you don't go out and play. Um, but he, but he, he was never over the top. And, and um, on Sundays when he didn't work, his calorie intake was down. And uh, he looked great his entire life. It, it, it's uh, – I, I don't know. that you know Here in this country they talk about depression babies or depression kids and maybe that's part of – it, but I agree with you that I, when you look at people that successfully age, and we know this, um, there are core behaviors that they engage in. And lifetime physical activity is, is very clearly one of them. Um, moderate intake of calories is clearly another one. And those were hallmarks of, of the way that he lived. Now, my father, um, lifetime physical activity maybe not so moderate in some of his consumptions. Um, he gave up cigars not that long ago after having given up replaced cigarettes um, with them. And, um, you know, a couple of cocktails a night at the end of a hard day instead of waiting until the weekend. But God bless him. It's, uh, he, he knew that once he stopped working, he was probably going to have to start to modify things, and he did. Um, unfortunately, now he's also struggling with some health stuff that has crept up on him. Um, so we'll we'll see how he responds. He's got a lot of discipline when he wants to use it. So we'll see. Beautiful. Well, that, that kind of brings us back to your childhood. So um, thank you for telling those stories. Now, with the athletic space that you're in now, obviously you're, you're well embedded. Um, what were you doing as a school-age kid? Were you a big athlete? Were you big into training? We're always doing something. I mean, you know, I guess I am of the generation that, um, especially in the summertime, we were told right after breakfast, get out and maybe come home for lunch. I don't want to see you until supper time. And then you got to get back out again. So, you know, physical activity was always a huge part of what we did growing up. Um, and I consider it a blessing. There are all these memes about how we survived this 
I'm at the very end of the, the baby boomer. I'm one of the, the 1963, I think, is the last year of the baby boomer generation. And, and we just, we grew up a different way. You know, we were always out doing stuff. So there was always that backdrop of lots and lots of activity. Um, and then it became sports. A lot of the sports were pickup sports where I grew up. Um, we played a lot of pond hockey in the wintertime, basketball. I didn't play as much baseball. Um, I played organized football um, for most of my my formative years um, and some school team basketball. Uh, tried wrestling for a year. It was just starting to come into uh, the high school that I was at. Um, so that was my, my athletic background. I got sick my senior year with mono when I couldn't shake it. I had it for over a year. I was trying to get ready to play football for my senior year. And, and I went from a hundred and 180 pounds uh, down to 137 pounds in uh, a couple of weeks. Oh my god! And my I, I, my physical stature hasn't changed since I was 13. So I got all my height and I got all of my width. Um, the thickness came later, but um, I, I was 137 pounds at the at my sickest point, and I didn't get rid of that until I was uh, halfway through my first year of college. Um, so it derailed a lot of stuff. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't train. I had an enlarged liver. I had to be monitored. It was, um, it, it wasn't a fun period. Um, but in response to that, I got back into the gym and lifted and ran. It's funny cause I, I've done lots of stuff and I love what I'm doing when I'm doing it. And then if I move on to something else, I, I love that activity. So I, I had a bicycle racing period. I had a long running period. I, I think I went more than 30 years without missing a workout. Um, and a lot of that was built around some approach and weight training. And, and along the way, there were different dabbling approaches to, to that over the 35, 30 or 35 years. I didn't miss a workout. Um, so it just, it, it, it took on a different form. Uh, once I, once I got through that period and I was in college, um, but I went to a small school. There weren't a lot of athletic options. So, um, it was uh, doing that kind of stuff. My brother was a rugger. Um, he was behind me, and he went to the big university in Massachusetts and got on the rugby team and played with them for five years. And, and I, got, I got into a few matches and, and had an absolutely brilliant time playing that. Um, my, in fact, my grandfather got to see. He came up for a visit and went out and watched um, a match one weekend um, when he was up visiting. So um, that was great fun. Um, but I didn't really have that resource uh, at, at where I went to school, so it was a lot of things, a lot of lifting weights, a lot of a lot of running and biking, and and then when I went to graduate school, things changed again because I had started a family, so it was uh, constant morphing into some activity that when I'm in the middle of, I really enjoy. So beautiful. When when you were in the school age, what was your your dream career? What were you thinking about? No clue. <laughs> you know, it's funny. There's a there's a Yiddish phrase that I wish I, I, I need to learn how to say. Um, but the translation is man plans, God laughs. And it really honestly is um, the story of my life. Um, when I was in when I was in high school, I, every summer that I was in high school, I worked at a therapeutic day camp for emotionally disturbed kids. And it, it kind of set me on a path. I, I, I was convinced I wanted to be a psychologist. In fact, I remember the day I was driving with my father and I was looking at colleges and I said, 
he said, what do you want to study? And I said, I want to study psychology and philosophy. And honest to God, if he could have, he would have slammed his foot on the brakes. Um, and wanted to know just what the hell I was going to do with that. Um, but I kind of forged my own path. I, I studied, I got my bachelor's in psychology. Um, and then I, throughout college, I worked in the field in a number of capacities. Uh, took a year off from school, went to school nights for a year. I worked in a, uh, a clinical setting, a secure clinical setting for adolescents. I worked in a couple of school settings for adolescents. One was a dead end place. It was just absolutely crazy. We had really, really disturbed kids. Um, one kid got tossed from his high school for threatening to rape his teacher. And he was going away to the National Guard on the weekends, running around in the woods with an M16. And then he would come and have to walk laps around the softball field because he swore at a teacher. I mean, it was just, it was, it was a cuckoo place. Um, and in the process of doing that, because I took six years to get my bachelor's degree, I realized that while I, I am fascinated by the field of psychology, in my the opinion that I formed at that point, and not much has changed it since then, is that all psychologists are nuts. And I didn't want to be. Um, so I started drifting into sports psychology. That's that's That was where I wanted to go. Um, by the time I was wrapping things up, I had decided that I, I wanted my PhD in sports psychology. But I had, again, without any prior planning, I started a family. And I thought I needed a way station before jumping into my doctoral program. So after looking at the field of sports psychology for a year or two and, and studying as much as I could, I, I came to the decision that while sports psychologists knew a lot of stuff that worked, they weren't entirely sharing the basis for it, the underlying physiology of it. So I hatched a plan to get my master's in exercise physiology and then go for my doctorate. That, that was the route that I had or the trajectory that I had planned for myself. So I disappointed a couple of people on the faculty where I was. Uh, I worked with a brilliant industrial organizational psychologist and he was really disappointed that I didn't follow in his footsteps and my main, my primary advisor was this brilliant woman from New York City who couldn't understand for the life of her why I would go to Kentucky to go to study exercise. Um, but that was the path that I took to, um, to what I thought was going to be my career. It was going to be in sports psychology. Um, so along the way, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff in there about applying it to yourself and applying it to others and flow, and there's just some brilliant stuff. The mind-body connection, I think, is, has been a primary connection and a focus of, of my attention for decades, um, probably since I was 20. Uh, so that's a long time. So it's interesting. I, I love it when, when people's background ties into what they end up doing, the element of industrial psychology and what you're doing now as far as you know the, the profession of the first responder and how I'm sure some of that organizational element either you know creates the environment to thrive or not you know that, that I'm sure if you look back now that professor would actually be proud of what you're doing because there is there is part of his field in there I wish I wish that he were alive um, that I could share that with him because he, he really was a, a, a great guy uh, his field of IO psychology was a little different but what I do now and have done for over 30 years in developing tests is pulled directly from IO psychology. It's the emphasis is on the physical domain, which they, they really don't do a very good job with. Um, so 
my background allows me to straddle those fields and it is entirely the field of IO psychology that I, my, my consulting and test development is, is rooted in that. Um, so yes, it would, uh, it would be great fun, um, to, to let Dr. Ronco know that, uh, I didn't, I didn't drift that far away. Um, so, um, I, I left to go to graduate school and studied exercise physiology and that's where my, that's where my edu- my formal education stopped, um, at least in schools. Uh, at the end of two years, my wife was sick of being poor and, and didn't want to stay in Kentucky. So, again, I thought I had a plan and <laughs> took a sharp turn, which is the start of my, my professional, I guess, my professional period. And you kept hearing God uh, laughing over and over again. <laughs> Every time I thought I had a plan, um, <laughs> something would, would, would come up. And, and what came up was the – and th- th- this is, you know, I think some people, if they start on a career path early, um, there are oftentimes formative experiences that occur. Uh, in 19 – so my, my, my oldest was born in 1987, um, and I started graduate school in the fall of 1987. And in the, the uh, winter of 1988, we were commuting back and forth between Kentucky and Boston for Christmas. And I was reading at a truck stop. I was reading the, one of the Boston papers. And there was an accounting in the paper of this incident that had occurred at the Western Massachusetts Police Academy. And it, the incident had occurred in September. So this is three months later. Um, and as I was reading that, I, at the time I was doing some work with the Lexington Metro Fayette County Police Department um, through the university. And so I had a little bit of a, a sensitivity to law enforcement and, and what goes on. And as I was sitting at this truck stop, I was thinking to myself, man, what a mess this is. I'm glad I'm not in the middle of that. Fast forward to May 1989. I'm wrapping up my studies, getting ready to start my research on my on my um, master's thesis, and there's a national conference every year for this association where grad students and undergrads go to try to find jobs in their fields of related to fitness. That conference was in Boston that year, May 1989, and my wife charged me with looking for a job at home because she really just wanted to go home. And my thought was, mm, I really want to stay in Kentucky. My family's there. I like it there. Um, I want to go to school. I was looking at medical school. I wanted to get my doctorate. Um, I, I, by then, I was looking at becoming a strength coach. So I said, okay, I'll look for a job. I applied for the one job I knew I wouldn't get. Um, the agency, the state agency that oversees police training was at the, was at the heart of the situation in September. And, and we could, you know, we'll talk about the incident, but the the bottom line is that after a number of reforms and some people went to jail and a whole bunch of stuff, they had created this brand new position, state director of physical fitness and health maintenance programs for all of the academies in Massachusetts. I thought this is perfect. 25 years old. I have no political connections, no law, real law enforcement experience. I'm going to apply for this job and, and go home to Kentucky and say, well, I tried. It got better 
I got an interview at the conference. They were just starting a national search to fill this position. I got an interview at the um, at the conference, and then they asked me to go to their headquarters for a meeting with a small subcommittee. And I thought this is getting better and better. I'm gonna I'm gonna really feel good about going back to Kentucky and saying <laughs> I, I tried. In fact, I got two <laughs> interviews, not one. Um, but there's no way I'm getting this. So I did. I went back and I said two. I, I two count them interviews. And then they called me back and asked me to come back for a final interview to head up back to Massachusetts for the interview. And <laughs> here I am. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was. I started work in uh, July first, nineteen eighty nine. Um, so it was thirty two years ago that I I thought I had it all figured out, and here we are talking today. Amazing. Well. It sounds like that parallels some of the the issues that probably spearheaded some of the things that law enforcement are you know struggling with at the moment. So what was that incident? And you know, so that then we can see is this basically history repeating itself again and again? Yeah, like bell bottoms, right? Don't don't throw away the bell bottoms. As long as you don't get too fat, you'll be able to wear them again sometime soon. Um, so in um, probably 1987 or 1988. It was it, the agency at the time was called the Massachusetts Criminal Justice Training Council, and they had a statutory mandate to provide uh, recruit and in-service training and support for municipal law enforcement, uh, state and county corrections, probation, and parole. So they had the whole criminal justice gamut at the time, and they hired a guy by the name of Tom Collingwood. Tom is the grandfather of all of us in law enforcement physical fitness. Um, Tom is the one that put Cooper's Institute on the map in terms of law enforcement fitness. And that's a, that's a whole story, whole giant 30-year chapter in, of my life. Um, but they hired Tom to develop a t- set of tests and standards for the police academies. And so um, using an old method, Tom came to Massachusetts in probably uh, May or June of 1988. And he presented his findings. And the agency wanted to implement the test and standards right away. And the state agency that oversees the civil service process, at the time they went by the name um, Department of Personnel Administration, DPA said you can't implement those standards right away. You have to wait a year um, because you'll adversely adversely affect the appointment process. There are already people in the pipeline, so the agency can – assess people, but they couldn't make a decision about whether or not they get in until July 1, 1989 is what they wanted them to do. Well, the agency and its staff assessed what became what, what was class number 12 at the Agawam Academy. Agawam is the Western Massachusetts outpost for municipal police training in Massachusetts. And so they assessed the kids that wanted to go to that academy session, which was going to begin September Call it September 1st, 1988. The old methodology that Tom used was to look at a job, do a job analysis, and there wasn't a connection. We didn't have a a connection then between the job and what level of fitness was required to do the job. So he looked at the job, did a job analysis, looked at some of the people in the job, but it really was a judgment call as to what level of fitness 
and this is this is really fascinating because it gets into the whole progression of fitness testing in public safety. So help to steer me back to that at some point. But in, in terms of this situation, Tom proposed the 40th percentile of six physical fitness tests. They had normative data that the Cooper Institute had produced on tens of thousands of people. And he proposed using the 40th percentile in these six fitness tests as entrance to the police academy. And they were age and sex adjusted. So they had norms for males and females from 20 to um, 60. That's part of the evolution of fitness testing in, in public safety. But in any event, the entrance to the academy was the 40th percentile, which is less than average fitness. And they proposed the 50th percentile as the graduation requirement. So they assessed class 12. 52 kids took the test. 37 were not even at the 40th percentile. So 37 of the 52 wouldn't have been admitted if the new standards were in place. September 1st, the class starts. And at the time, the Massachusetts State Police were the uniform staff instructors doing the training. And in Massachusetts, as was happening virtually everywhere in the country, modified stress was the indoctrination and inoculation to police training. Um, and probably to the fire service, although I wasn't as well steeped in it at the time. But certainly, as a paramilitary organization, that modified stress approach had been used forever with the military. And so day one of the academy happens to coincide with particularly hot and humid climatic conditions. Unfit people, 35, 37 were below the 40th percentile. And for the first three days of the academy, they get all of this unaccustomed activity, up-down drills, boot drills, lots and lots and lots of physical activity from the time they show up until the time they leave at the end of the day because it's not a residential academy. And, of course, they, like a lot of folks, were doing water hardening. If you got a drink of water, you probably got something the size of a tiny Dixie cup, and they didn't give you enough time to finish it. By day three of the academy, the kids in the, uh, are in the, they're in the bathroom comparing notes. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm peeing red, I'm peeing orange, I'm peeing brown. By the end of the third day, half the class at the end of the day ended up going to the hospital. 16 kids needed some degree of dialysis to jumpstart their kidneys because of a condition they developed, and one never left the hospital. He, kid from Western Mass, was admitted to the hospital. Um, he had liver failure. He ended up needing a liver transplant. He got the liver transplant in November of 1988, and he died subsequent to the liver tra transplant. He didn't survive the, the, that. So the agency... And the state police, the Criminal Justice Training Council, the names of the instructors, the incident, everything was on the front page of every single major newspaper in Massachusetts for over 200 days in a row. Eventually, the governor had had a, a committee that investigated this. The attorney general investigated it. There was a commission that was um, put together by a, a representative from Western Massachusetts to investigate the incident. And... And so by the time Christmas 1988 rolls around, all of this is on the, on the front page of the paper every single day. And there's another development. There's a this, there's a that. 
a bunch of people lost their jobs. The direct, the executive director of the agency ended up um, being charged and convicted of financial malfeasance. He is just pissing away money and doing some stupid stuff with, with the Commonwealth's money. Uh, but nobody was charged with anything as a result of the training. But all of these committees eventually produced a, a number of reforms that were proposed, and one of them was the creation of this test, of, of this, sorry, this position, which is what I applied for, knowing full well that I would never get it. And I did. I was 25. And, that, and now I look back, I have pictures. One of my best friends that I grew up with, his, his older brother, who was also a good friend of mine, graduated from one of the academies not long after I started working there. And these guys are twin towers. They're both 6'6". And I'm not 6'6". I'm not even close. One is in a police uniform and the other one's in a civilian attire. And I have my suits. And because I was this bigwig at the, at, at the graduation. And, and honest to God, I look like I was 13 years old. When I look at that picture and I reflect on what I had to put up with for eight years as a state director from a lot of the guys that I had to supervise and work with, it's no wonder that I got the treatment that I got because I look like a snot-nosed, skinny little kid. Um, but that's um, that was my entry into the profession. Um, I sat at one end of a long conference table. There were about 12 people. I really pissed off the, the captain of the Boston Police Academy when I talked about fat cops and eating donuts um, in answering one of my questions. Um, but I got the job. And I was the only state director of fitness. They, they eliminated the position in eight years. Um, so we went from, the agency went from the, the bad kids on the block. I actually have a copy of a People Magazine article about the incident. People Magazine did an article about it. The um, Lancet, the British Medical Journal, big investigation. CDC looked at it. They were, and, and again, it was on the front page of every newspaper for over 200 days. Um, everybody knew about this. There were a couple of other high-profile incidences that were not dissimilar about the same time. In fact, New York City Fire Department had an outbreak of this, and two or three people died as a result of a test, uh, not even days of training. But that was the catalyst for lots of reforms, lots of work that had to be done, and eventually, talk about bell-bottoms, bad kids on the block, in a couple of years, we were going around to national conferences talking about all the reforms that we made and how smart we are and how much better we are. And then in a few more years, they eliminated my position. Eight years. The life cycle of police physical training in Massachusetts. Everything's accelerated here. So it brings us, you know, nicely to present day. And obviously, I mean, you've got decades of experience and we'll, we'll retroactively explore that. But to me as a responder having a very unique lens because i worked for some incredible departments that set the bar so high and we're like you don't reach it tough shit there's some great agencies out there good luck thank you for coming see you later and there was somewhere i had to step over the trench that the bar was buried in to walk through the front door and saw the ripple effects of that so you know i have i've have been very lucky to see the spectrum, I really have. And and then, therefore, the ripple effect of the high bar, the ripple of effect of the low bar. And it doesn't take much imagination to figure out what those are like. Um, so 
but the big thing is, as you said, this happens over and over and over again. You know, near misses are hardly ever taken seriously. Actual incidents initiate this, oh, we're taking it so seriously. Fast forward five, 10 years and, and those initiatives are gone again. So I would love to bring you to present day. Um, and let's start with what are you seeing as some of the main challenges for police fire in all the associated you know um, professions when it comes to entry tests specifically these days well we could talk about the present day but honestly it starts with the passage of the civil rights act um, and the the challenge that was posed by title seven of the original civil rights act in 1964 was to make the job accessible that there were people that wanted access to the workforce and because these were public dollars for positions that people could get there were title seven specifically of the original act speaks to what are the prohibitions in employment law and it, it's it identified classes of people that were protected but more importantly than that it established that your requirements have to be related to the job they can't be arbitrary and that was really where most tests originate from it, and we're still seeing it in some sectors. They're just they're completely arbitrary. But that set the stage for how do we make these kinds of human capital decisions. And the fact of the matter is they have to be based on the job. And then since the 64 Act, there have been a series of legislated acts and litigated acts and, and policies that have been set that have put us on the path that we're on. And so without necessarily getting into all of those details right now, the, the, the bottom line is that we are – employment law has evolved to a point where you may only require the minimum. If you know what the minimum is, you may only require the minimum that predicts safe and effective job performance, in this case, of the physical demands of the job. Now, there are a lot of competing forces that are acting on the interpretation and the enforcement of that. And that raises one of the probably one of the greatest challenges today. So if we if we fast forward to this point, the fact of the matter is that the laws say one thing, but the the enforcement body, the Department of Justice, Employment Litigation Division says something else. And so departments are caught in the middle of this. What everybody agrees is that you have to require the minimum. But then the question is, what does that minimum look like? And if we look at how the first, some of the first modifications were the age and gender adjusted fitness tests, that's what DOJ would like to have people do now because they have an agenda which they have been almost unequivocal about stating, which is more females on the job. And this is not to pick on females because the ones that are in the job that care about the job don't take this position, but this body does. And they want to keep the bar as low as possible and then leave it to the agencies that train or employ to make sure that they can do something. But they really, that agenda does not care a lick about the job or its performance. They just want to, they want to, they don't want to lower the gate. They want to drop the gate so that everybody goes through and then sort it out afterwards. And so, you know, there's, there, there has been an evolution over an understanding of what this looks like. In 1991, 91, Congress amended the Civil Rights Act, and they inserted language in there, Section 106, 
that says you will not, among other things, gender adjust your employment requirements. And it seems to make sense logically. The job is the same for everybody. We've developed the science to the point that we can identify a minimum level of physical ability in these domains, irrespective of age or sex, hair color, or any other characteristic that you might care about. And so we can comply with the letter of the law. We can comply with the logic and the application because when the call comes into the firehouse or if a call comes into the police station, you don't get to pick who takes that call. The performance of those tasks are non-negotiable at that moment. You show up, you got a task, you have to do it. We can identify what that minimum is. Now, you can argue about whether or not the minimum is enough, but we can identify what that is. The Department of Justice has gone on record as saying, we know what the amended act of 1991 says, but we feel like you have a greater responsibility under Title VII of the original act. And therefore, we feel it is okay for an agency to use adjusted standards this is their language now, when the goal is to equalize dissimilar groups. We're all dissimilar. That's the whole point of it, right? They don't care what you do to get in. They may care more about what you do once you have them, but they haven't really contested that. They're only looking at entrance standards. Now, this is where the, this is where the, the in my opinion, the biggest monkey wrench is getting thrown into this. Because, not only do chief executive officers, for instance, not have clear direction. The law says one thing, but the enforcement agency says something else. So I want people to understand. The law says you will not do this. But the enforcement agency says we think it's okay to do that. What they have essentially created is a situation where if you're the, the chief of the fire department and you say, hmm, I really don't want the Department of Justice coming after me. So I'm going to go with adjusted standards. You have essentially addressed one potential litigant, which is, or plaintiff, which is the Department of Justice. But you open the door to every other single person who is affected by this. Because once you start to adjust standards, you don't have a minimum anymore. If you have a standard for this population and that population and that population, you've completely subverted the whole notion of a minimum. And... You've broken the law because Section 106 says you will not gender adjust your employment requirements. Now, this is the big monkey wrench. Picking your own gender. City of New York, I think, recognizes 25 or 50 different genders. I thought there were two, but I'm a simple person. The fact of the matter is there are two tests or two sets of standards when you look at age and sex adjusted or sex adjusted standards and now in jurisdictions where you can pick your gender and it's a non-binary option that you can choose from clearly because 50 doesn't go into two very evenly there are a whole bunch of choices here i'm getting phone calls from departments now that are saying we're just going to stop testing altogether so the bar that was in the trench is going to have dirt covered over the top of it now and and that is the greatest disgrace of all of this because the nature of the job in its in its emergency form is not changing it's not getting any easier it's you you can't make fire less hot which means you still have to wear the same turnout gear 
and the thermal stress is going to be the same. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. But this is the this is the landscape that has existed since 1990 or 91 when Congress amended the Civil Rights Act. And there is no clear direction on this. Um, there's been some some marginal litigation where almost no direction has come. And in at least one instance where I w where I've been involved, we had hoped to go to trial, and the agency chose uh, the, the the state chose to attempt a, a settlement at the, at the last minute. Um, we were hoping for some direction on this issue, so you know we can talk about the fact that this department or that department is isn't doing a good job with its testing, but. What a, what a lot of the people in the field don't understand is that these forces are coming from from above us, and it's it has created an untenable situation, really. Um, and and we need some. It would be nice if some reason, but it's probably not going to be reason. It's going to it's going to be jurisprudence that's going to direct some of this. Um, we actually, I was involved in um, a, a case that, that they wanted to take to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and so I wrote an amicus curiae brief in support of, of the courts hearing the issue. Um, but they declined. They declined the matter. And that's a good story, too. Um, but anyway, the, it's, it's much more complicated. I, I talk to people about this all the time. And, and you know, when my phone rings... And somebody's calling about a test. Um, it's this is the exchange that has to take place. They 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 there's an education piece that has to go along with it, and then you hope that somebody is going to make a good call on it. Um, but ultimately, it's going to be the the person that or persons at the top who are going to make that call. Well, thank you, firstly, for giving us the the backstory. Because that's what I love about these long conversations. I've I've been a firefighter for fourteen years. I never heard, you know, that the ADA and some of these other influences are why we struggle with testing. And I give you an irony: this evening, I'm interviewing a police officer, Byron Branch, who was hit on um, a wreck during, you know, a, a snowy day in Ohio, um, lost one of his legs, and ended up rehabbing getting a prosthesis and has been working not only as a, a fully functional police officer, but also a high-level fencer. So the irony is Byron actually is, you know, an amputee and was more than able to reach that standard again with his particular injury that he got. So what I would wonder, though, is, you know, there's so much red tape and, and, and we see this over and over again. I can see now why... Testing-wise, departments are so siloed. I mean, it's insane that these departments don't communicate. You know, you could have two agencies side by side. One is an absolute rock star. One is a complete shit show. You know, and then they could be, you know, sharing and and, and lifting each other up. But when you ultimately follow the trail on the end, it it results in someone being shot because they freaked out. Whether it's they they tapped out halfway up a flight of stairs and never got to the person they were supposed to be reaching, couldn't pull someone out of a mass shooting, whatever it was, and you reverse engineer to this red tape bullshit, it's completely unacceptable. And as you said, it doesn't matter what color creed we are, especially in the fire service. We wear gear, you can't even see us. You can see who can and you can see who can't. That's the only prejudice that belongs. And that's how I feel about testing. You know, we 
we hold that standard high. And, and just to pull one of the agencies out, Anaheim, that was the one. We had a 25% attrition rate in the first year. And they held the line. And I watched it pay dividends, not only in in motivation to keep themselves fit. They didn't even need an annual fitness standard. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But they just, you know, self-regulated to the performance, to, you know, great people in the ranks as they, as they rose up, great chiefs ultimately. Um, you know, so I have seen with this kind of very broad lens that I've had, at the potential of lives lost, whether it's our own people, whether it's the people we serve because of this ridiculous politicking on the back end. Yeah, and, you know, as you said, there there are examples, but I think when you, when you look at what explains success, an awful lot of it, and we can look at best practices. It's, it's our job to look at best practices. How can, how can we learn and how can we share so that we can raise everybody up. Um, But I think almost without exception, when you identify a shining example, at the root of it is culture. And culture isn't isn't a permanent fixture, unfortunately. Um, You know, you have a culture of excellence, a culture of service, a culture of sacrifice. But you can't... It, it's hard to mandate that. And so the forces that create, instill, and support that, unfortunately, aren't permanent. And, and that's why we see these, even in, even in exemplary agencies, that it's, it's cyclical. And the agency that I worked for, every year that I worked there, for, and it was only eight years, every year that I worked there, almost without exception, especially in the early years, they wanted to, to close the agency down. At first, it was due to um, the financial problems that hit the country, hit Massachusetts first in the late 80s and early 90s. And so I was there six months when they wanted to zero fund the agency to save money. And then they did it again the following year. So I started looking at jobs in law enforcement and other places. Um, and then it became this perennial fight because of conjecture and, and fear and agenda or whatever else to get rid of the fitness test. And I think I worked for, it seemed like there was a revolving door at the, at the, at the big office, maybe five different executive directors in eight years and, and all but the last one successfully fought back the challenge. And it was the last one who caved and gave away the fitness test, the medical screening, and everything that we knew and kept people safe for eight years. So, you know, we went from really when you, I mean, you talk about traumatic stress, the people that were the state police trainers that were involved in this and some of the folks from that agency and from our agency, um, there was a, there was a sense, I think for a while of, of almost shame or disgrace as a result of what happened. And, and, they felt that they were doing the best that they could under those circumstances. In hindsight, we can fault some of that and we can say that things should have changed, but eventually we pulled it out of the fire and everybody moved on and and created a a wonderful environment and then boom, it was all gone again. Um, And, 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 and that was, that was a leadership issue. You know, you're, you hope that your leaders can establish that culture and people will carry it forth. Um, just unfortunately 
those folks, and I've seen some brilliant shining examples of this, um, have got an awful lot working against them. We worked with it. We did a. We we did a. Most of my career has been with the law enforcement, but I've done and created tests for the fire service, and we worked with a department in Texas, and and it's interesting because I worked with two departments down there, um, somewhat close together in terms of time, and in one department the 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 fire chief was super active. Every single day we had to demonstrate the job simulation test that we created for them. And he was the one that did it every single day. His, his gear was well-worn, had seen a lot of action, and he wanted this for his guys. And it was so important to him that he took time out of his schedule and every single day demonstrated the two scenarios as part of the testing and then there were to follow suit. In another department... The chief had, had, I gather, had come from another agency, had mostly been working behind the desk. Um, his turnout gear, when he attempted the test, had to be pulled out of plastic wrap, and he didn't know how to use some of it. Um, so it's, and, 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 and these are not personal indictments. These are examples of how I think, you know, go to, go to any bookstore or library. How many books on leadership are there? Uh, there's lots of ways to do what you want to do. And for my money, for the first responder, as you said, and it's, I agree completely, you, you have to set the tone um, and create that culture because it's hard to lawfully mandate some of that. It really is. It's not to say that you can't create it through good training. But now it's 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 becoming so much harder to even get people to consider public safety, whether it's police or fire, um, that other agencies that, that have got tests and want to test are concerned that they just can't get anybody because nobody can pass the test. And these these aren't hard. No, <laughs> I've done uh, I've done a lot of them. They're not. And that's not me again proclaiming I'm some super athlete. I know I'm not and they're not that hard. I just, I think, was, you know, fit for duty. But, yeah, I am. I have not... I don't, if you look behind me, yep, there's no uh, no gold medals hanging anywhere, so clearly I'm not an elite athlete. Um, I, I want to get to the special operations community in a second and, you know, how they're able to do what we can't do in our professions. But before I do, I think one... And it, it's so sad because this shouldn't even have to be a conversation. I think, you know, our performance and our longevity from a human kindness and compassion element, you would think from a leadership point of view would be, you know, paramount. However, clearly that's not the case in many, many places. Money talks, bullshit walks. So through your lens with decades of working with our professions, what are some of the things that you've seen as far as, um, the long-term savings of a good entry test and good wellness and fitness standards, creating less injury, less early retirement, you know, and, and, and better performance, therefore no mistakes as well. Are you seeing a kind of common denominator that can be used as a selling point to some of these departments? There's a shocking absence of that information. In part because, uh, and, and this is a drum that I have beaten loud and long for um, many years, agencies need to undertake this process of compiling this information. And I suspect that it exists in enough of a form that they could even do, a, do retrospective analysis of their numbers. 
Um, my guess is that it would be what we know is that public safety officers start their careers more fit than the general population because of the entry requirements that exist. Even if they're modest, they're still training, and we know that training is going to be more demanding than the job, predictably. It's also going to be a lot safer than the job. Um, but we see people entering public safety at a much higher level of fitness, and then they quickly overtake their non-sworn counterparts and be, and because of the conditions of the job, um, have higher morbidity and mortality rates at a much younger age. And testing by itself is not the silver bullet. Yeah, you have to have a program to reinforce a test. It's not. It doesn't work the other way, as we've seen, because testing is still the norm for entrance to the public safety job at the front end and yet we're not seeing it throughout the career and even agencies that want to test I, I I have to share I have to share my opinion right my opinion is the test alone is not going to work you have to have a program to reinforce that hopefully the test will ensure compliance of the people that are least likely to be able to demonstrate that but everybody needs a program uh, of some type, whether you're self-motivated and you create it or you wait for it to happen at work. There has to be a program. And so when you look at some of the data that's been published, and it's, it's very thin, um, one of the things that we see is that people wanted to make the argument that we should have a more fit public safety workforce because they're less likely to get injured. And that's not the case. They're actually more likely to get injured. And that's because of sleep deprivation, not able to rest and recover. That's something that I've seen through some of these interviews is, is part of the problem, especially in the fire service. That, that may be part of it, but the other part, and this is, this is the, oh, that makes perfect sense, because the fit guys are the ones that are getting after it. They're the ones that are actually doing the job. Now, maybe not so much on the fire service, but on the law enforcement side, a lot of the work is self-initiated. And we find that people that want to avoid the job take a left turn instead of a right turn, and they're the last person to show up than the first person to show up. And a lot of firefighters that don't want to do the job will put themselves in a position where they're behind the wheel, for instance, or they're doing something else. And the, it's the fit folks that are getting after it. So it speaks to some of the mindset stuff that you talked about, but it, 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 the reality of it is that if you are more physically capable, you're more confident, you're more aggressive, you, you're more prepared for those stressors, and therefore, you're more likely to do the job. And if you're doing the job of a police officer or a firefighter, well, there's a good, good chance something bad's going to happen, even if it's something minor. Yeah, so a numbers game. Yeah. So saying that, well, we'll just make them more fit, they won't be injured, that's not the metric that we're looking at. What we see is that more fit officers tend to be out less long, so they cost the agency much less, and they also tend to be injured doing service-related line-of-duty activities, as opposed to the unfit officer or firefighter who puts their back out bending over to pick up a paperclip on Monday morning, and they're out for six months or a year. The fit guy got dinged up on, a, on the fire scene, and he can't wait to get back to work, because that's who he is, and that's how he approaches or she approaches their lifestyle and their work ethic. 
Um, so when we look at costs, it requires some interpretation, and we got to got to peel some of these layers of the onion back. And most places don't even know that they have an onion to peel. Um, they're not looking at the data. And so when I when I do get to work with an agency, I, I that's one of the seeds that I try to plant. Um, let's start to look at some of these numbers and see because industry knows that there is a return on investment, right? And people that have financial advisors are saying, oh, wait a minute, I've heard that term before. Same thing happens with the investment of a public safety employee. Some time ago, the, rec- the suggestion was that the ROI on, a, on an employee-centered health and wellness program was about $3.19. I think that number has changed. Um, and I don't know what the new number is, but the federal government was saying for the public safety or, or in general for physical, physical demanding jobs, uh, an employee-centered health and wellness program has a $3.19 return. Now, a lot of folks have issues with ROIs. Um, there are so many confounding variables, and some folks will completely dispel them out of hand. It's certainly worth looking at and tracking. But one of the things that we know is that, and you've talked about longevity several times, the fact of the matter is that you know, on the police and the fire side, people that have worked their career in that profession are going to live less long than the non-sworn population. And in some instances, the numbers are staggeringly different. And like you said, right. that same group when they were in their 1820s standing on the drill ground were the more resilient members of that community. At that time. But because of, because of all of the factors that we know about, they, they, they eventually end. And, and so let's go back to the legal discussion for a second. The two things that you have to have or be able to demonstrate in support of your employment decisions are that your requirement is demonstrably job-related and consistent with business necessity. Now, these are this, these are legal doctrine uh, or concepts that are a slightly longer conversation. But here's where the rubber meets the road. We're saying that physical ability or physical fitness is so important that you can't enter into the in the, the environment or the profession without it. But once you're in, you never have to demonstrate it again. Makes no sense. There's no basis in logic or law. In, in the fire service, what's crazy is that we call our academy, in Florida at least, minimum standards. So they've even labeled it for us. They made it firefighter proof. Like this, this is the key just to turn the lock before you even walk through the door. And so to have that expectation, and for me, I don't know, people listening, my academy here in Orlando, the expectations were high. I mean, physically, it was grueling, and we lost people, and, it, and they, they kept that bar high. It was, it was awesome, and that was minimum standards, and that's what blew me away. I walked into you know, the fire. Actually, I take that back. Hialeah, my first apartment, another crucible, three months of brutal academy that, that you know, was, was incredible with some really intelligent rest and recovery, cooling, some excellent things to offset the demand, but then after... After that, I went to California, a bunch of self-starters, a different dynamic, but still very high. And then when I came back out east, that's when I saw what we're discussing now. And I was like, how can this be? You know, people high-fiving each other, you know, for a 1019 CPAT. And that's the last time their heart rate will ever be raised 
because no one's going to hold them accountable anymore. They had great fitness facilities, but as you said, it was a voluntary. They were never able to mandatory it. And I talked to the PJs and the SEALs and the Green Berets and even the, the, the ocean lifeguards of the world, and they're held to the standard every year. And I'm like, why the hell in police and fire have we been allowed to, to devolve to this place not only makes us less effective, but also now we're burying our men and women left, right, and center. I mean, I just, it, I do not understand how we got here. That's a lack of will. It's not that you can't, because the same conditions exist, right? It's, it's supposed to be a minimum requirement, so that would be the minimum at entrance. It would have to be the minimum for maintenance, but that can be, that can be managed, that can be enforced, that can be conducted. There are lots of forces that are acting on that in, in places where collective bargaining or unions are strong. It tends to be a, a contentious issue. And, and this is I butted heads with people in, in labor for decades. I just don't I don't get it. I think they've missed an opportunity here. Um, so there, there are those forces. There is. And, and this is this is probably more pernicious, in my opinion, because you see it even I've seen it at the highest levels of. I've had the opportunity to work with some national security agencies. Um, complacency sets in. And people forget that being in the job is also the ability. They, they falsely equate it with being able to do the job. The fact that I've been here for 20 years and, I, and I'm still here doing the job is their defense. And respectfully, you have to observe, but you haven't done the job in 15 years. And looking at the way you move around, there's a good chance that if it smacks you in the mouth tomorrow, you're not going to be able to do it. So when we put together a test, when I put together a test, for me, it's a physical readiness test because the methodology by which we develop these tests creates predictive value. And we can predict with a high degree of certainty that if you can do this, you can do the job. And so it's no longer, well, I'm, I'm in the job, I'm still in the job, I'm okay, I don't need a test. It's, you're in the job, you haven't done the job. Take this test to predict, at least at a minimum level of safety and effectiveness, that you actually can do the job. And employing agencies can absolutely positively maintain a test for the duration of the career of the officer, firefighter or police officer. Um, but they fail to do that. And they fail to do it because there are forces that are acting on them. And I think they also eventually slide into this, this, it's, it's probably a couple of things, a couple of silos, right? Complacency is one, but job protectionism is another one. They forget that they got into this for a different reason than the one that they're holding onto it for. And I, and I get that now that I'm now that I'm so much older, I understand that that happens, but the job didn't change. You tried to change the job around you to create this situation, and now you're more interested in protecting your paycheck and your pension than you are in protecting the public that you're hired to serve and the people that you're working with. And that's a hard one. That's a, that's a, that's a, that pill or, or chicken bone goes down sideways. For a lot of folks. Um, but some of those folks eventually get into a position where they're making the decisions now. And 
So we've we've had instances. I've actually turned my back on on opportunities to work with agencies when they've said, "Well, you'll create a different test for our command staff, won't you?" And I said, "Sure. Show me the policy that says if you're above this rank, you will not do this, 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 or this. You'll never be at a fire, never be at a wreck, never be at a shooting." Right. And you know what follows from that is you'll never back somebody up that needs it because the policy says you won't. You're a captain now. You don't do that. Um, once you start to do that, and you can, but you're going to get right to the heart of their ego, which is one issue. But the other thing that you do is it, it argues for taking away badges and guns and cars. If you're not going to do this, why do you need that? Because there is a – and this has actually been upheld in a couple of decisions – there is a public expectation that if you have that badge, if you have that uniform, if you have that car, that you can render that. And that's actually been a couple of adjudicating bodies have supported agencies having retention tests and standards because of that rationale. There was a, a case involving the National Park Service, um, and it was at Arches Park in St. Louis. Supervisor. Um, for the park police said, I'm a supervisor. I drive a air conditioned car and I don't have to do any of that stuff. I shouldn't have to take this test. And the, I, I think it was the labor relations board finding was the public that you serve at the state park have an expectation that if you are in that vehicle and in that uniform, that you can render that assistance. Now I'm paraphrasing this, but um, that was the essential gist of the, of the decision, and therefore they upheld the agency's fitness test for that um, officer and would not give him um, a waiver on the test and standard. And that's, those are some of the forces that act on agencies and agency heads when they don't have an incumbent test and standard. Um, now, why don't they have a program? Well, they eventually realize, they eventually think that they don't need it or they, you know, and, and, and we see this, we see this, we see it all the time, right? Training budgets get cut. It's usually one of the first places that go. And especially, I mean, this is especially true in law enforcement and in the fire service. When you perform some of those tasks so seldom, if you're not maintaining proficiency in the ability to do those things, whether it's technical or there's a performance element to this, a, 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 an expression of physical ability. You can't know if you can even do it. Um, so tests and standards need to be supported by programs. And the two together are the response that we think um, we've seen has the most success and produces a competent workforce. Otherwise, it's unchecked. It's and, and we're rolling the dice when people go out on a call. If you've got guys that can't get out of the recliner, if you've got guys that can't get out from behind their desk, and I, I've worked, I did work for an agency. They had two or three guys that were so big that they wedged themselves behind the steering wheel, their patrol vehicle, and they didn't move for eight hours. And that's why the chief wanted to, he wanted me to come in and, and test some of his people. Um, he didn't stick around long enough to see it all the way through, but, um, this was, you know, you, you, 
you don't have to be an exercise physiologist or, or even somebody who exercises on a regular basis to watch somebody wedge themselves behind their steering wheel and think, hmm, wonder what else they can't do. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, that's, that's a minor thing. I've, I've, I know of a firefighter that pulled a steering wheel off, grabbing onto it and pulling himself into a cab. I know another one, and sadly, you know, he passed away. It was at one of my crew. Um, and, you know, there's, there's definitely some, some emotional elements to, I think, where he found himself deconditioned. But he climbed, you know, a single story, just a roof ladder up to the single story we were cutting on the top. And those eight steps, I thought he was going to code right in front of me. You know, now you put a small child in a building and that's who we're supposed to be saving. And now that person goes down, that becomes your priority. That child dies, you know. So I, I, I use a phrase and I, I use it a lot, but to me, there's no better way of illustrating how I feel about this. How would you feel if your family died because a responder hadn't trained? How would you feel that your 21-year-old was shot reaching for his driver's license because the the cop is you know deconditioned and only qualify once a year in a range you know or you know the firefighter never made made it to your apartment floor or you know your child bled to death because they were the cop that decided to stay outside while the gunman's running around this you know what i mean i mean the 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 ripple effect of this we're not plumbers we're not carpenters and those are great professions and if you're in police fire whatever there's some excellent positions that don't require fitness anymore go go you know check sprinklers go do all these things and i don't mean that demeaning those are just great professions where you're not expected to lay your life on the line for other people but i don't understand how not only people choose not to but administrations and unions oppose these standards that get in the way and unquestionably people have died because certain people have been allowed to stay in a position they had no business being in one of my mentors and and the first director of fit force um came from a brilliant career as an army ranger and he um as he was taking the position as the director of Fit Force when it was owned by Human Kinetics, was attempting to resolve how he could get in front of police officers when he had been a soldier his whole life, his whole professional career. And what he realized was that both an Army Ranger and a police officer are come-as-you-are professions. When you show up, you don't have the opportunity to say, you know, I've really been meaning to do fill-in-the-blank. I've really been meaning to lose weight. I've really been meaning to exercise. I've really been meaning to get back out and start running again. Um, because when the call comes, you show up, you got to be able to perform. And while I, I, I absorbed that lesson, but I would, I, I extend it to life because life is a come as you are profession. You don't, if, if you have a family that you care about, if you have any fill in the blank, if you are going to be called upon to do anything, and you have, and, and this is the hard part, right? Because you get older and I, like I said, I didn't miss a workout for probably 35 years. I got injured and then surgeries and because of stuff that I did and some of it was chronic and some of it was acute, there are always going to be forces that are going to act on you. And yet the job and in my opinion, life is always going to be that come as you are proposition. And so when the bell goes off, are you going to be able to respond? You know, when you, you, you talk about the, all of the potential outcomes of somebody who can't perform, we have got so many people. Um, I don't understand why we don't have more litigation. 
And, and one of the areas that I don't understand we don't have litigation in is in the surviving family members of people that have lost their life in the line of duty or related to the line of duty and have not gone after the employing entity, whether it's a city, a town, or whatever it is, for not ensuring that their person could do the job. Because that's a, that's a whole other area of legal exposure, right? If, if, if my wife is a police officer in Salem or a firefighter in Salem and they haven't and it's actually on the books in Massachusetts. There is a there was a, a reform to the entire pension system that said for the duration of your career, you will have to pass a test biannually. Every other year, you're going to have to pass a test to keep your job. They never funded it. They never created the test. They have never tested anybody. And yet we're seeing people dying. Firefighters, at least most of the literature suggests that they don't necessarily die on the fire scene, but they die afterwards at during the recovery phase of the operation um you know it why we're not seeing litigation from the surviving family members on this issue i just think it's a from a legal standpoint i think it's ripe it really is for litigation um and i've had offers to go to the dark side and start you know suing police department <laughs> it's 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 like you're looking at all this hanging fruit and, and it's not about money. It's about understanding that these the lives are across the entire spectrum. It's not just the the potential victim that is supposed to be served by the public safety employee or servant. It's how about their family? They watch them. We, you can probably, you might not have enough fingers and toes. If I if I were to pose this question to you, James, who? In your experience, in all the firehouses that you've worked in and all the agencies that you've worked in, who fits this description? They just did not manage themselves. The department didn't control it. And they ate, drank, abused themselves into a position where they were unsafe to themselves, let alone the people they serve. Don't name names. No, lot, I mean, I can think of lots and lots of examples. Less, less like I said, in the first couple of departments, especially California. Very, 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 barely none there, and so many. And in the last one, you know, I'm like not going to name names. But there's people I know if they were called on to put their mask on, they wouldn't. They would walk mm -hmm. away, you know. Yep. So to me, that's completely unacceptable. And there are so many positions in some of these departments where you don't have that responsibility. But yeah, and we we just allow it. And like you said, the unions. And there's, let me be clear: I was a union pay, paying member my whole life. There are some great ones out there that are putting awesome stuff out. But I've seen the ones the other side, where the union board are all morbidly over, you know obese and are basically self-serving and fighting any wellness initiatives, so they make sure that they're never fucking held to a mirror. You know, so yeah. I mean, as you can tell, it pisses me off a little bit. But yeah, well, I mean, you know, let me let me let me rattle your cage a little bit more, please. <laughs> you're still a young guy, but the longer you're at this, the easier it's going to be for you to identify a name and a face to the next one that I'm going to give you. They worked for 20 or 30 years as a firefighter. They retired and they dropped dead six months later. Oh, if they even made it to retirement, the number of few. I mean, I'm, I'm a young young guy and not a huge amount of time in the fire service. I mean, I do, a, I do, did because their wellness department got shut down. Orange County, that's you. They had an amazing, an amazing wellness initiative. An incredible group of guys did a thing called the Three Four Three Hero Challenge, annual 
tribute to 9-11 and the fallen and it was a fundraiser beautiful the only time i'll ever do crossfit as a as a you know a sport as it were um but i would write names on my back i wrote about this in in the book that i wrote last year the first year i did it there were six names of people that we lost and that was kind of like what kind of spurred me into starting the podcast and everything the last time which i think was only four or five years later i had 36 i think it was 33 36 names on my back so that i see it i see it and that's what drives me crazy show me any downside to a fitness standard and wellness initiatives i'll wait and here's the thing you know we 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 should celebrate um, even heroic actions in training and testing but we also need to reach out to the people that that level of performance is beyond what they can comprehend for themselves. And we need to bring in through example, through education, and through leadership some minimums too. We, we need to just get people up and moving around. We need to just have them make one decision, this shift about not putting something in their mouth, making the decision to get up for 10 or 15 minutes and then if you're on a 48, then do that two or three times. It doesn't have to be a two-hour workout where you can't breathe afterwards. 10 or 15 or 20 minutes at a time, two or three times on a 48-hour shift. Once a meal, make one better decision. And we're going to do more for the people because we've, we've seen through epidemiological studies that the biggest bang for your buck is taking people from the lowest level of health and fitness up one rung on the ladder. Stephen Blair, epidemiologist, identified this in his, in his landmark study of Harvard um, graduates. If you can move people from the lowest quintile, the lowest 20% of fitness, just up 20%. So you're going from, from 1 to the 20th percentile, 1 to the 19th, and putting them from the 20th to the 39th percentile. We're not talking about high achievers. These aren't the people that are going to win the the you know the the stair climb to the top of the prudential. These are the people that, as I said, they're going to accumulate 30 more minutes of continuous activity most days of the week and do something to control what they eat. And you will reduce their risk of dying in that particular year by 78%. 70, that number is staggering and for the for that modest investment so you know if we look at that concept a lot of the stuff that we have in the fire service in the SWAT and 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 we don't have it nearly as much as we used to in law enforcement where we're celebrating these highest levels of performance we actually see some of those folks are, are more sick more often and dinged up because they're pushing against their limits possibly or they're just not taking care of, of the, the little details. Policing and fire work requires us to be decent generalists. We don't have to be marathoners. We don't have to be crossfitters. We don't have to do a lot of stuff, at least from a health and performance perspective, to protect ourselves, our families, and the people that we live and work with. And so that message 
and we've shot ourselves in the foot in a lot of different ways over the years in, in delivering or not delivering that message. But the fact of the matter is we need those heroic expressions and we need to give people a high bar to shoot for. But man, there's a lot of bang for the buck that's going to occur at a, at a, at a much, much lower level. And we're going to see better workers and people that are going to live longer. Now, we should acknowledge that cities and towns and employers are not particularly invested in you living a lot of years post-retirement. You're no. just a financial drain. Yes. Um, and so this is one of the mistakes I think that especially younger, more fit officers make. And it's, a very, it's, a, it's an emotional reaction instead of a reasoned response. The job is not going to love you back. You can love what you do. You can love being of service. You can fully absorb and exhibit the warrior mindsets to protect those around you. Job is not going to love you, and they don't care what you do after you retire. They don't even want you on the dole anymore. So, you know, we, there are a lot of ways to, as a, a, I don't want to overuse the onion analogy, but there are, there are a lot of ways to peel this apple. How's that? I'll try a different one. Um, and, 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 we have to look at that um, a little bit, especially for incumbents. Absolutely, positively. Beautiful. Well, thank you for your insights. I want to go to to Fit Force then. So, people listening, I'm sure we've got you know, hopefully sowed some seeds and in, in maybe some some people that hadn't you know, considered this before. Obviously, there are some some incredible hard chargers out there, and and you know, just motivated people. Some that are thriving because of their department. They're in a great environment. Many, I think, whom are thriving despite their department. And again, it's funny you said about the organization. I just had uh, Dr. Ellen Kirschman on, who wrote "I Love a Cop" and "I Love a Firefighter." And she was, you know, it's great explanations on organizational stress and a lot of, you know, what we're talking about on the mental health side. And I think that's it, understanding that organization doesn't care. And it's not, um, you know, coming from a place of, of ill will or hatred, but an organization itself isn't isn't a thing. And so even though we love what we do and we're so proud of our service, the moment we retire, that seat is going to be filled with someone else. And that's a hard, hard thing for us to swallow. But anyway, back to, to Fitforce. So, so talk to me about the service that you guys offer, um, because I hope we will see, whether it's you know after this last year in law enforcement, trying to raise some, some standards. Obviously, that requires more money, not less, politicians. Um, but uh, you know, on, on you know, the, the services that you can provide an agency, whether it's fitness testing, whether it is even helping with wellness standards. We, I consider us to be a full-service physical readiness um, solutions company. And by that, we mean that we can and do create tests and standards. And we have a methodology that Tom was able to advance. Um, and we can predict with a very high degree of certainty that if you can do this, you can actually do the job. It's very powerful. That process also produces two tests, which from an implementation standpoint, especially for an incumbent workforce, creates an appeal process as well, which is absolutely brilliant for the decision makers and the people that might be might have to defend this. If, if you are going to take somebody's livelihood away from them, you have to have a lot of good data. They have rights and, and the, the incumbent needs to be protected. Two tests will help to do that, without a doubt. Um, and so there's a whole lot of policy stuff then that needs to be built into it. There are only a couple of entities 
that I, in my opinion, that are qualified to create tests that are defensible. Um, I don't know that any of them have uh, the, the same background that I have in terms of understanding what the policies and procedures look like because it's not just about a test. A test by itself doesn't make a, a hill of beans of a difference. Um, there has to be a comprehensive review of policy and procedure. And then those policies and procedures have to be correctly articulated. They have to be developed and implemented. They have to be predictably enforced. Um, it, it is not a happenstance. They have to be regularly checked and there has to be a predictive nature to this so that everybody is being treated exactly the same. So in addition to creating the testing standards, we will also do a comprehensive analysis of policy and procedure. And, and that can be separate from. All of these can be done either collectively or as individual services. So in the creating a test, we will do a job analysis and, and that's the foundation for everything that we create. But then we also will train people to do the test and help to try to change the culture and then eventually give them the test and standards along with implementation guidance. Policy and procedure review and analysis is another part of it. Our flagship course is a, is a three-day training to be a fitness coordinator or a physical readiness coordinator. And we've got lots of specialized training that, that we're willing to conduct. And then finally, arbitration and litigation support. Um, so it's as, as far as I'm concerned, we're a soup to nuts. We'll, we can develop your program, your curriculum, your tests, your standards, and help you to defend that as well. Um, the implementation piece, and this is probably, if I were to criticize, the implementation piece would be the piece that I would criticize most clients about. They don't see it all the way through. And, and it, I am very transparent. I, I, I believe in this equation where I am contracted by a department to, to do this, I have the easy job because I've been on the other side. I know what it's like to implement. A, I've written state policies. I, I understand what it's like to administer these programs, and it is easily the hard hard job. Um, I can I can I can leave town and and uh, you know with a, a paycheck and some slaps on the back and, and think I did a great job. But as far as I'm concerned. If the agency doesn't implement this and I don't help them to, to, to both serve the workforce, the public that they're entrusted to protect, and the agency itself, then I haven't, done, I haven't been able to do my job to its fullest. And I don't view it as a labor or management issue. I view this as a mission issue. We have a mission. And the mission should include pe keeping people safe. Um, and that includes the employer from litigation, and the employee. Um, and so I, I, let me close the, this box a little bit. That's what we do at FitForce. <laughs> <laughs> well, just quickly, because I want to go to some, some closing questions before I let you go. But one point that you brought up, and I want to make sure I'm clear from my perspective as well. Obviously, if, if you bring in an annual fitness standard, there has to be an amount of time to allow people to to be brought up to that bar. You know, I'm I'm absolutely opposed. You just bring it in and boom. If you don't if you don't reach it, then you're fired. It's kind of what we're seeing with vaccinations at the moment. You know, whether people are opposed or for, you can't just bring that in and threaten. You know, a, 
a responder that's worked for two, three decades. So they have to. So the, so there needs to be a period with all the agencies that you've seen. Um, what is the time period that you found is is a good amount of time to bring in a wellness standard and give so, give someone enough time to prepare for it, but obviously at the same time drawing a line in the sand. And if you know there isn't the desire to reach that, then that maybe initiates moving to fire prevention or you know parking or whatever it is. Right. The so you know we, we are adamantly opposed to grandfathering anybody. You want to bring in a test and standards. You you don't exempt people that are already on the job. We would we call it an evolutionary approach to the implementation of a test and standards. And as you said, you can't change the rules overnight. Monday morning, everybody shows up. They have to pass a test, or they might get fired. Is is illegal with good reason. Generally speaking, we re- recommend that agencies take two to three years, and and there are predictable phases to this. From a physical standpoint, remember, let's go back to one of the first things we talked about. These are the minimum levels of fitness that predict the ability to do the job. Now, when it comes to a test, it doesn't matter if it's a job performance test or a physical fitness test. The, um, the fact of the matter is that if you can't do all of that, it's not about the test. And this is where, especially with fitness tests, people get jammed up and say, well, we we shouldn't make them do push-ups or we shouldn't make them do this and they vilify the test. The test is related to all of the physical tasks on the job. And so if somebody says, I can do the job but I can't do push-ups, then I, I am immediately thinking, well, what about this, 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 and this? Can you do those things? Well, I don't know. Maybe not. Okay, so it's not about the test. It's about the job. So that's the first point. The second point is, those standards are set at a minimum. If you've got people that can't meet the minimum with six months of good training, then they probably can't do the job. There's probably an underlying issue there. There's something that's going to prevent them from doing all of the essential physical tasks that are required of the job. But having said that, we feel like two or three years is the way to go. So if an agency starts September 1st with a new test, if you can get everybody that's hired after that point to meet those requirements for the duration of their career, brilliant. For the incumbent workforce, in the first year, we would recommend that they have mandatory education. Everybody's going to go through some in-service program on some element about what this thing looks like. And then that has to become a regular part, mandatory education. They can take the new test if they want. Agencies shouldn't keep those results, but they can take the test if they want, and there's obviously no compliance. In year two, mandatory education, mandatory testing, voluntary compliance. And again, in year two, don't keep the results attached to officers' names. In year three, it's mandatory training, testing, and compliance. And then that's going to kick in a period where you're probably going to have a test retest and some period where they're still keeping their job while they're remediating to pass the test. So it's not even going to be three years. It's going to be more than that to reach a level of ability, physical ability, that is probably achievable in six months if you can do all aspects of the job. And we would like to think that they can. That evolutionary approach, though, has to be part of an overall 
effort. And as I said, the policy and procedure review has to take place. There has to be a subjective performance rating of your employees. And there should be some objective rating of employees' performance because one of the areas that some agencies have shot themselves in the foot in is implementing an incumbent standard, making them comply. They get to the point where they're going to fire them for not passing a physical test. And then when the plaintiff, in this case, the, the officer that might be fired, says, well, all of my performance ratings say I'm Superman. See, you, you said two years ago and then this year, and I'm doing a wonderful job. So how can you say that this is so important that I can't do my job when you said I'm doing a wonderful job? So there, there has to be a, both an objective and a subjective. And the objective is you're my supervisor. You're going you're gonna to evaluate my performance for the last period. And you say, well, Smith can tie his shoes and fill out a report, and he has nice penmanship, but he hasn't had to do any of the following physical tasks that were identified in the job analysis. And based on his inability to reach his feet to tie his shoes, I question whether or not he could do those essential physical tasks. That's the first part. Have you actually done the job? Because if you're being evaluated on what you chose to do, not what was required, that has to be observed. So there's an objective and a subjective piece, which will go to the business necessity element that we talked about. Beautiful. Well, that's, I mean, such an important perspective. And it's, you're the person that asked that question. I mean, I, you know, I've been in, in wellness initiatives within departments, um, but that was always a, you know, I mean, what, what is that figure? But you just made that, you know, make sense completely. So thank you so much. I could talk to you for another hour and a half, but we need to kind of circle around and wrap in this particular conversation up. But this, this, yeah, beautiful. I think we, I think we should definitely do another part because I still have a thousand questions. Like, for example, how are the special operations community able to hold up? But we'll save that for, for part two. Um, the first of the closing questions I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Let's see. So the listening audience should be aware that, that that's a blind question. You didn't feed me that question. Ahead <laughs> of um, there, there are so many topical areas. Um, um, I'm, I'm going to defer and let that question sink in for a second. Give me, give, give me the next question, Jim. Okay. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm about to ask you a question about your favorite movie or documentary. There, I told you ahead of time. Do you have a favorite <laughs> movie or documentary? I'm going to say a favorite. It can be, you know, several, but but ones that you love or ones that you've talked a lot about. Jeez, oh, I love it. I, I wasn't thinking I was going to be getting all personal on what I thought about stuff. <laughs> um, favorite movies. It's funny. I was just talking to my son. Um, so my my oldest um, is a builder, but he started. He he has the the heart of an artist, and uh, that's what he trained in. And interpretation is is one of his great strengths and we were talking about movies and because I just saw it again and it's one that I, I, I enjoy watching um, is Jaws and the a lot of the character development comes together when they're sitting around the table at night um, and they they start to encounter the shark beaten against the bottom of the boat and they the, the movie does a brilliant job of developing the characters and and they express um, themselves in that moment, and it's uh, the it's the the initial forging of what becomes the relationship that they take into the battle with the shark. Um, 
I, I just, I think it's brilliant and I enjoy it every single time I watch it. So, um, and, and what I learned from my son is that, uh, although the, the setting for that is a little town, um, on an Island in new England, um, it's actually based on a true story that, that a great white shark went up, um, upstream in New Jersey and ate a couple of people in the twenties, I think. Um, oh, really? So, yeah, he, he, his, uh, his girl is a, is a librarian and they live in New Jersey now. And, and, um, he threw that nugget at me. So I've got to do a little bit of background, but I think that the, um, the, the characters, the characters and the character development, um, that come together, especially in that scene in Jaws is one that I, I, I appreciate a lot. Very cool. Yeah, we've still got Jaws hanging up in Universal Studios. I do stunts on the side, and, and he's still there, yeah. strung up by his tail. <laughs> I love the I love the Robert Shaw and, and uh, Dreyfus in particular, the two of them. But but um, uh, Roy Scheider um, as the police chief, they just they they all had they all had adversities and issues that they had to overcome so that they could work together um, to to overcome that challenge. It's it's allegorical. Um, on some level that I would love to explore at a different time. Absolutely. Well, it would have been a different ending probably if um, uh, the police chief had been morbidly obese. He probably would have been eaten right at the beginning. So there you go. Another, another cautionary tale. Shark num-nums. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, have you had um, uh, Dr. Paul Weitzel on? I have not, no. Um, I don't know. Paul is, yeah, Paul, Paul would be one of the strongest recommendations. He's retired um, colonel or superintendent of the um, Indiana or Illinois State Police. Um, Paul has an amazing life story and background and is an absolutely brilliant speaker um, and is a one percenter physically. He, uh, I met Paul 25 years ago, I think. Um, uh, I'm not, we're not close, but I, it's hard not to be, um, to appreciate and respect what, what Paul conveys. And, and much of it comes from, from his own experiences, um, starting with his experience in Vietnam. Um, he's a, a world-class martial artist, um, police officer, former soldier, um, and has impeccable academic credentials and speaks absolutely brilliantly about the human condition and performance. Is that someone you could connect me with? Uh, I could, yeah. I it's been a while since we've exchanged emails, but I I, I would certainly try to track that down. I I should be able to do that. Paul is. Um, I don't know how much public speaking he does, um, and I don't know what his response would be. He used to do a lot of work at um, Federal Law Enforcement Training Center and other groups. Um, he's been retired now from active law enforcement for a few years, but. Um, absolutely positively brilliant beautiful well thank you for that all right well then the last question and then we'll circle around to the book just in case um what do you Something do to, <laughs> <laughs> what do you do to decompress uh well it's actually probably a lot of things i um 
the my physical training um i i used to be very active in martial arts uh jujitsu mostly um i've been a lifelong lifter um and as a result i've i've been dinged up had some surgeries um meditation became an important staple of what i do a few years ago and for a lot of reasons and the the uh i think I'm, I'm a huge proponent in the classes that I teach and when I talk to people of people that that uh, for people to try meditation and a lot of people think well I can't do that I, my mind never stops so that's not really the point mindfulness meditation um, is I think is and what we're seeing should be one of the basic pillars of a resiliency program um, for first responders and, and, and anybody um, so and the other thing that I that has changed a great deal in my personal training is a much more aggressive approach to flexibility um, that's based in strength. It's not static stretching and hanging out and, and you know just breathing. It's a lot of end range of motion strengthening, um, in part because I'm well. I'm going to be how old am I going to be? I'm going to be 58 this year, um, and years of powerlifting have uh, diminished some of some of the capacities that I would, uh, that I want back. Um, so a lot of very aggressive flexibility slash strength training, um, I find is a great way for me to start my day and, and then some, some other stuff that I do. And then if I don't get the full workout that morning, then I get it in the afternoon after I've done that. But it's, um, for me, it's a great way to, to get my day going and, and to get away a little bit from stuff. And what is there a certain kind of uh, philosophy when it comes to that mobility strength training you're talking about? Yes, it's interesting, and this is a this is probably a, a topic for an entire show. Um, flexibility as a term has become so contentious in the field; it's comical. Um, it really is. The uh, functional range conditioning is a group that has got some brilliant stuff on stretching and flexibility training. There's also um, he's a Brit, and he's He's written a bunch of stuff, and he's got a training program and some other stuff on flexibility, and he's he's trying to be the standard bearer in terms of terminology, um, which I, I respect. So, for instance, mobility, people like the term mobility and not flexibility. Um, I think it's a little more descriptive, but the, the idea is that just being able to get to a point in your range of motion and not being able to own it doesn't mean that you can function there. And... So the um, the extreme, first of all, isometrics are a brilliant way to train this, and we know that isometrics will also result in tissue remodeling, which, especially for our connective tissue, which doesn't get a lot of that, there's we there's good evidence to support the fact that extreme end range of motion isometric activity will remodel tissue, and it allows you to capture strength and control. At the at those limits of the range of motion, and it's it's not just about sitting and, and stretching and breathing a little bit because um, that's not. I hate the term functional, but you don't own that if if you can't move and control in it, and and that's really the point. And what we tend to assume, especially for the older listeners in the group, we tend to assume that we're just. We're not going to get that stuff back, for instance. It's not true. Um, knees, hips, ankles, shoulders, back, 
absolutely positively critical and it's a kinetic chain. If your back hurts, it's probably not your back. It's probably something else. And same thing for your knees. Look above and below the knee. And one of the areas that you really have to look at is getting those muscles as long as possible so that you can function throughout the entire range of motion, not just what you've allowed yourself to operate in. Absolutely. You reminded me of a book that I had when I was a younger martial artist. I did Taekwondo, so obviously the splits and all that were important. But Thomas Kurtz, I think his name, Stretching Scientifically. And it was the P- PNF, is that what they called it? Um, yeah, so PNF is – that is a specific approach that moves through three planes of m- motion. Um, and there are characteristic exercises that are associated with it. But what Kurtz was able to revolutionize – and there's a guy named McAtee who has – um, written a couple of editions of this of a book that also talks about PNF, um, con- the contract relax, and that's where they introduce the isometric contractions at some of those end ranges of motion. And now the 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 uh, functional range conditioning folks have got pails and rails, and um, they're they're it, we circle the drain. You know, everybody likes to think that they created the first fill in the blank. We're really not. We're just we're repackaging stuff and and so partner sister or some of the PNF stuff that includes isometric contractions, slow eccentrics have become huge and popular um, in training. And there's you know, this is stuff that thirty years ago when I was getting I got my I became a certified strength coach in thirty two years ago. Um, I'm looking at the at the certificate. It was thirty two years ago. The field is completely changed and stayed the same. Um, and I think one of, now that I'm older, one of my, my areas of particular concern is to try to help people to age successfully, um, especially as public safety people. And this stuff is, it's, it's great fun to get back into and give it time. You didn't, you didn't lose mobility in your knees overnight. You won't get it back, but you can um, absolutely positively. And that's just one small example. Now you're going to ask me that question about a book. Well, you and gave me, you gave me a couple of books. We, you know, we've got, um, you know, some of the stuff on, on mobility. If you have anything else though. Most of it is, you know, for me, it, it's, it's topical. So it, it's easier for me to say what is a, what is a topic, um, or, or an author who's stuff that I like. Um, so, a lot of the inspirational reading um, and life stuff that, that I enjoy comes from a guy named Richard Rohr. Um, and he's written some lifespan stuff, and um, it's R-O-H-R. Um, but then it's, it's topical. There are, there are just some, some brilliant people out there on, on various topics. And um, so I'll throw out as a suggestion – instead of a, a particular book, um, if you haven't started to spend time diving into the fascia pool, do it. Um, and there is, um, there are a couple of people in that pool, but, but fascia is a topic and an area that I think we all need to get up to speed on. Um, we really do. Because our old model of teaching muscles as levers and pulleys and, and um, insertions and origins is has, has missed the boat in a lot of areas. And so Parisi from New Jersey, 
had the Parisi Speed School, still does, I think, um, has done uh, a nice introduction to it. And that's called fascia training. Um, and he cites several brilliant resources in that book. So if you want to take a deep dive into it, um, but the fact of the matter is that an awful lot of our function isn't even based in muscle. It's based in fascia. And I did, I, I had the, the opportunity to do a human cadaver dissection anatomy class in, in graduate school at the medical school that I went to. And you, don't, you didn't see fascia, but that's because they drained all the fluid out and they, they embalmed the body. And, and, you know, what our view is, is completely different. And the, it's a big growth area in the health and fitness field that I think deserves a lot of attention. So instead of a book, I'll say, I'll, I'll throw out fascia and fascial training. As with everything, there are a lot of kooks out there that are going to try to sell you a bunch of mumbo jumbo because their name's on it. But the concepts, that's the important stuff. Absolutely. Well, Jay, I want to say thank you so much. Um, before I let you go, where can people find FitForce and where can they find you on, on social media, Instagram, oh, excuse me, uh, the internet, that kind of thing? So the, our, the, the website is FitForce Inc., all one word, FitForceInc.com is the website. We're in Salem. Our contact information is on there. I'm, uh, I'm going to take responsibility, mea culpa. I am responsible for my poor social media presence. Um, I've got a, a Twitter account for FitForce. I've got an Instagram account for FitForce, and I do almost nothing with it. But um, if I can be of service and as things continue to, well, I would say loosen up, but I think we're heading back into another cold COVID winter. Um, but the... Uh, Training is still the hallmark of, of what we do and being able to educate folks about what the issues are so that they can make decisions because in the end, that's that's people have to understand what the issues are and where can they get credible resources from and that's that's what I try to do. Sorry, I got a screen pop up here. Um, the uh, That's what we try to do with, uh, with our material and uh, – so fitforceinc.com, telephone number, email are all on the website, um, but that's the easiest way to find us. Beautiful. Well, I want to say thanks to Matt again. This has been a great conversation. Thank you to him for connecting us. But I mean, you're you're a voice that we really need to hear. Whether it's fit, uh, you know, law enforcement, fire, whatever it is, you know, we we are silo. A lot of people are trying to invent things from the ground up, and and the the history that you guys have, you know, the the knowledge of the red tape behind it, you know, the understanding of how to, you know, overcome some of the hurdles that we constantly run into, I think it's invaluable. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time, almost two hours today um, in this conversation, and there will definitely be a part two. So thank you so much. It was easy, and, and I greatly appreciate the opportunity, James, um, getting to know you and and uh, sharing some of this and, and uh, feel free. You got a you got a weak spot in your lineup, and you and uh, you. You got to go to the uh, you got to go to the farm team. I'm I'm happy to pinch it. Beautiful. <laughs> I disagree with the farm team, but I appreciate the offer. Thank you so much. <laughs> Be safe. <laughs>